Well, it is sure good to be back. Yes, it is. Uh, it's nice to be up here and uh, uh, working through uh, today's text with you guys. Uh, I-, I love the fact that God provided so many people to come and preach uh, in my absence, uh, both from inside the refuge and outside the refuge. It was uh, good to hear from from different people along the way. It was. Uh, I appreciate you giving us some time as we blended our families. Uh, and and it really is what could have been a time for like blending oil and vinegar really was really a, a smooth time for us as we uh, as we put our families together. So thank you for praying for us. Thank you for uh, uh, lifting us up in your prayers, for encouraging us along the way, and uh, thank you for uh, for encouraging us in this smooth transition we had. And so it was very much needed and very much appreciated for sure. So. We're going to dive right in pretty quickly. Eric, I'm going to need you to help me with this uh, slide, getting it up on this, uh, on this piece, if you don't mind. I've just got the countdown clock up here. So uh, welcome back to, uh, there we go. Still don't show anything up here, but we'll just work with it. We'll just go with it. All right. Maybe you come here and uh, adjust my iPad while I do this intro. <laughs> this is what I got. See, 501. I got a countdown clock. That's all I got. I got five minutes. <laughs> I, <laughs> It's hard for me to recite my name in five minutes, so uh, so I will. Uh, I'll jump in and we'll work on that while he's working through that. So a quick review of Genesis, because that's where we are. Is uh, Genesis? We were in Genesis. Uh, we began it uh, not a few months back, and it was like in the very beginning. Boom! Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so I can't imagine what that was really like. Whenever God just spoke the world into existence, but He did, and it happened, and we're here because of it. And so that's the beginning of the whole Bible is God creating things from the very beginning. And God creates all things and and then God creates man and he says it's not good for man to be alone. And so that's a good thing. And so God made a helper for him. Her name was Eve and Adam was like, va va boom, yes. Uh, Excellent work, God, nice work. And so he marries Eve and so we see the first wedding in the Bible and he said, I'm gonna make this girl my girl. And like, so they get married and we use a lot of that text from Genesis in our marriages, in our wedding ceremonies, uh, even today. And then we get to uh, Genesis chapter three. And it gets really heavy because man and uh, uh, the man uh, falls into sin, and uh, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and uh, everybody's pointing their fingers at everybody else because you did it, and it was your fault, and it was your fault. Everybody, nobody wants to be responsible for their own sins, and we, so we see that in Genesis three. And honestly, it's because of Genesis three is why chicken strips are my nemesis, uh, all because of the fall uh, for sure. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Yep, I got it. Thank you. Uh, and then um, we get into chapter four. Uh, it's Cain and Abel. We get to Cain and Abel, the story of them. Uh, and then Cain kills his brother Abel. And then we follow, that's followed up by the, uh, the sad story of Lamech, which was one of the last uh, sermons that I preached here before the break. Uh, and then we get into a whole Genesis five. It's a lineage uh, of, of the descendants of Adam, which leads us to chapter six, which is where we are, where we are today. So if you'll open your Bibles to chapter six in Genesis, uh, that's where we will be. And we see sin that is spreading through the world like gangrene, like really wildfire. Uh, it is happening so fast and so wide and so prevalent. So we're gonna dive into today's text in Genesis chapter six. We'll pick up in verse one, and this is what the text says. 
When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim or giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Uh, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord uh, regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created, I will blot out man from whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Some viewers may say Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into today's text. God, we love you. God, we're thankful for your creation. We're thankful that we are your creation. We are your a handiwork. You have knitted us together in our mother's womb. And God, I'm thankful for each person who's chosen to come today to worship you in spirit and in truth. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll take the words today, use me today to bring a message of hope and promise from you today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So Pastor Blake covered the first two verses of this chapter uh, a few weeks ago, and he did a great job of working us through uh, those couple of verses. Let's look back to see what it said in those first two verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So now there are a few thoughts on this, a few different ideas around what all these things mean. And, and many of the questions that revolve around this thing really revolve around the things of just who are the sons of God? and who are the daughters of men and and what is the significance of this kind of seemingly obscure passage whenever we read through it. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I get to this text, I can just blow right through it. I'll just read right through it and go, yep, that's just part of the historical context and I'll just read on through. Uh, But the reality is, uh, as we're mindlessly reading through this, uh, there's actually a real, I believe, a real sinister plot at work here in this particular part of the text a real a destructive piece uh, that our enemy was at work in doing. But, but also we'll see God's plan to accomplish his own purposes despite what it was that our enemy was trying to do. And so even the best laid plans of our enemy will be thwarted uh, by our God. Who knows we have an enemy? Come on. If you don't, I promise you we have an enemy. Who knows he's at work even today? Yep. Who feels like you might be in the middle of some of his works today, that he's like working around and on you today? Uh-huh. Yep, you know, what it's, you know what I'm talking about? Who knows that the victory's already been won? Hey. Yep, where's my tambourine? Yeah, I mean, that, that is exciting things, that no matter we do have an enemy, and no matter we, and it's true that we do have an enemy, it's true that we do have someone who is against us, specifically as followers of Jesus, but we have already won the victory in Jesus, so we can celebrate those kinds of victories today. So in this text, um, it seems that 
uh, there's a plan to produce some type of master race between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And so we'll kind of get into what that actually means. Uh, so let's jump ahead to see what, the, uh, what we goes on in verse 3 and says this. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. So there's a couple of thoughts, a couple of schools of thoughts uh, on this particular verse as well. Uh, one, it's that God decided that uh, the lifespan of man would be considerably shorter than it had been at some point because of the sin of man. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, thinking about as, to live as long as people lived back in the early part of the scriptures, that's a long time. Can you imagine being 602? I mean, that's pretty old. I mean, can you imagine being even 400 or even 220? I'm not talking about my weight. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about an age of being that old. I mean, that's old. Uh, but so fortunately, God said, hey, you know, this, we're only going to give man a certain lifespan. Or, so that's one of the thoughts of, of, of uh, one of the prevalent thoughts of this time is that God was limiting man's time to 120 years. There's also another thought that says, hey, there's only 120 years until the flood, from this time until the great flood. And so both of those things are actually really true. So whether you land on this text means that man's time is limited to 120 years, or whether you land on that this was 120 years from this time in this text to the great flood that was to come, you can apply that to verse 3. You can choose option 1, you can choose option 2, or you can choose them both. Either way, we're okay with that. Got we? Tracking with me? Yes, sir. You can pick one. We're actually going to vote. Who won't? No, we're not going to vote. We're just going <laughs> to let you st- just kind of mull in that and think through that. Again, these are some texts that we might have been in that you might have just run through and never thought, oh, that's what that particular piece of that text means. But right now, you can choose one of the two, or you don't have to choose right now. We'll keep going. Verse 4 says this. The Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, again, this as you read through verse 4, this can seem like some just harmless text, uh, but the reality is it was an utterly destructive plan that was thwarted, we'll see again as we get ahead in Genesis 6, that plan that was thwarted by the great flood that was to come. So what we see in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 6 uh, uh, in verse 4 really is, I believe, genetic manipulation. You're like, what you talking about, preacher? I really believe that that's what was really happening in Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 4. So let me explain about that a little bit. Um, genetic, let me sidebar to today. Genetic manipulation abortion, uh, the elimination of the weakest in our society. Uh, this is a storyline that we see going on even today. Would you agree with that? Yes, sir. Yeah, so it's something that we see even in, in 2020. Uh, that storyline is really continuing uh, today. And so we don't like to think about things like this in a real spiritual sense. Uh, But the reality is that we face the same deceiver today in 2020 as we read about in Genesis 6, okay? 
that, that, so I, what happens is in our culture today is we get lulled to sleep and thinking that we don't have an enemy. We can read about it here in Genesis chapter 6 and we go, oh yeah, well we see the devil at work and, and we see the enemy at work here. And so, man, he was really at work then. But we don't think about it here in Lakeland and Arlington, Tennessee, do we? I mean, we don't think about that we face that, that that's the same enemy that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. That you have that same enemy. You are his same enemy. And he is set to destroy you and me just like he was setting out to destroy people then. So it, look, I believe uh, that in, in, as we read about in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we read about the enemy that lies and distorts and changes and wants to manipulate God's word and wants to lull us to sleep and believing that what he's doing is not that bad of a deal. That genetic manipulation or abortion or the elimination of the weak is not just really a bad thing. And we can gloss over that even in today's culture because of so many things that were happening. Now, you may be in the middle of some of those. You may have experienced some of those. And so this is not a thing to beat you up. This is just a, thing, this is just a message to say, hey, we have an enemy. And he can lull us to sleep by just making us think that things like that are okay. I believe all this began in Genesis chapter 6. Now, there's three real uh, uh, interpretations about how all this plays out in Genesis chapter 6, and a couple of them I, uh, I, I don't give a whole lot of credence to, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the one that I really believe that, this, that Genesis chapter 6 is about uh, and so that's the fallen angel interpretation. Um, according to this view, the sons of God in verses 2 and 4 are fallen angels which have taken the form of a masculine human-like creatures, okay? You're like, this seems like sci-fi. Yeah. But I, I, this is what I believe the real interpretation of this particular text is. And so these angels married women of the human race, either they were the Cainites or the Sethites, and the, their resulting offspring were the Nephilim. And so that's where the Nephilim, I believe, came from. And the Nephilim were giants. They, were, they have physical superiority. They were big and strong and, and, and massive people. They were the men of renown. The scripture tells us that that's who they were. They were the men of renown. And they had this huge physical appearance. And, and they were sinners in their own right, but they were just, look, they were the massive people. They were like Gaston, you know, and they were the one, you know, the big and strong and puffy chests. And, and so everybody wanted to be like them because they were something else. And you may say, well, why do you believe this, Pastor Scott? And so well, when we interpret the Bible, whenever we read the Bible and we interpret the Bible, it's best to use the Bible to help us interpret the scriptures and what they say. And so when we see the term sons of God in this text, we can go, All right, where does it also talk about the sons of God in the text? So let's, let's look at a couple of places where we see this same terminology about the sons of God. We can look ahead in Job chapter 1 verse 6. That's what the scripture says this. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. We see it also in Job chapter 2 verse 1. 
Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along them to present himself before the Lord. That's in Job chapter 2, verse 1, and over in Job chapter 38, verse 7, when the morning stars came together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And, and, and so I believe that we can... Re- Take from these texts that we're talking about the sons of God were, were people that, we, that were, uh, uh, were fallen angels during that time. Now, some of them have issues with this view about angels having sexual relationships with humans. And so that's hard for us to think about. We don't think about that in those particular terms. And so there's times that we go, hey, this can be a little bit problematic with this view. But uh, sometimes we go to, Ma- some people go to Matthew and go, I don't know about this because Matthew tells us something different. Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 29 and 30 says, uh, you're mistaken, they're, uh, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, there's neither marry nor giving in marriage, for they are like angels in heaven. So some people would take from that that there's you know asexual kinds of things, and we shouldn't think about angels with any type of sexual things or, uh, or, or uh, think, think about them in those particular terms. And we're told that Jesus says that angels are sexless, but is that really true? I mean, is that really true? Uh, the truth. Jesus compared men in heaven to angels in heaven. Well, what we're told is that in heaven, there's no marriage in heaven. There's no female angels. There was no female angels that we're aware of uh, for for whom angels could generate any offspring. Angels were never told to be fruitful and to multiply as was a man. And so we can uh, find angels described in the book of Genesis, and it's clear that they can assume human-like form and that their sex was masculine. We see that in the text and in the scripture. The writer of Hebrews mentions that angels can be entertained without, without us being aware of that. So we can know that, that angels can take on the form of humans, that they can look like humans because we can entertain them without even knowing that we've entertained angels. Surely angels must from time to time look convincingly like men without us even knowing that. We look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know that even uh, in those times, remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how the the, uh, angels had come into Sodom and Gomorrah and they were trying to rescue the family? And the men of Sodom were trying to get in to to have sexual relations with the angels. Remember that story? They were trying to break in to even do those things. We'll get to that in Genesis chapter 19. Even in the New Testament, we see some reference to this from Genesis chapter 6. Over in Jude verse 6, uh, let me find this. what it says in Jude verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And so this verse seems to indicate that some of the angels who fell with Satan were not content with their proper abode. They kind of stole my line of stop trying to control me. And, and, and so they're like, they didn't want to stay where they were supposed to stay, and so they were out for just a little while. And it seemed that these fallen angels began to live among the men uh, and women during back in this Genesis day. And again, God's judgment on these angels was fought, was uh, on these fallen angels, with, and he would place them in bonds so that they couldn't do these things going ahead. That's what the scripture says in Jude. So I know that's a lot of information, a lot of strange information. You go, man, I don't even know what you're doing, what you're talking about, preacher. A lot of that information is to say, how do we put this into context 
from Genesis chapter 6 and talk about this. So I believe whenever we take all the scripture into view, whenever we take all the places where the scripture talks about fallen angels, whenever the scripture talks about how the angels are at work, we can take all this into view. I believe that the result of this union between fallen angels and women, I believe, is really clearly implied to be the Nephilim that we read about here in Genesis chapter 6, a race of crossbreeding fallen angels with humans who are the result of an angelic invasion on earth. That's what I believe. I believe that to be true. You may not land there, but I hope you'll go back and think about that. That's what I want you to do is think about the text. Think about the scripture. Think about it and study these things on your own. But I believe that's where we get to in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I mean Genesis chapter 6. Now, after all this explanation, in Genesis uh, chapter 6, uh, I believe that it describes a, a, a plan by Satan, a, a plan by our enemy to attack the godly remnant that we're talking about uh, that is named in Genesis chapter 5. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 5, there's a godly remnant that was left. And I believe Genesis chapter 6 was a description of our enemy who was trying to destroy that. And why do you say that, preacher? Why do you get to that, preacher? Because think about this, that as long as there was a godly remnant that was left, that means that there would be a savior that was to come, okay? You tracking with me now? You see what I'm saying? So we had had a, we had had a promise because of the fall in Genesis chapter three because of the fall of man, because man had chosen to sin and sin had come into the world. And there was also a promise that there would be one to come that would be the deliverer of from man from all of our sin. We know his name is Jesus, right? That there would be a promise of him who was to come. But there was also a sinister plan to go, if I can invade this and if I can change this and if I can change the outcome of all this and I can have a demon babies basically, then there won't be an opportunity for this Messiah to come. I believe that was the plan that our enemy had had during this particular time. As long as there was a righteous seed is preserved, then God's plan of salvation would continue and it would hang over the head of Satan. Remember that was from Genesis chapter three. I mean, in my Bible, it's like one page back from where we are. Genesis chapter three says this, where God told Satan after the fall of man, he said, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so he said that, yeah, you're gonna bruise the heel of the Savior, but he will crush your head. He will crush your head. And so I believe that there was a sinister plan to try to eliminate the possibility of the Savior that was to come. Now, here's what I don't believe. I don't believe that, uh, I've heard it taught before, uh, in this particular text that, you know, this was a, 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 a really a savage invasion and a, like, a, a, like a rape was involved and, and these uh, angelic beings were raping women and those kind of things. I, I don't really believe that we can deduct that from the text. Uh, I think that's reading something into the text. Uh, I, I believe that during this time that, that, they were just cho- the, that they were choosing men, that women were choosing men, men were choosing women based off their physical appearance. I mean, it's the same reason Carol chose me, because of my, just just kidding. (laughs) I mean, I'm not kidding, but anyway, I digress. I mean, think about it. If if you were uh, an eligible uh, woman in these early days, I mean, who would you choose? 
Would you choose some handsome, strong man uh, that was easy on the eyes, who had a renown for his strength and accomplishment, a man of renown that the scripture said, or would you comparatively choose someone who uh, doesn't have uh, quite those uh, characteristics? Remember, there was a promise of a salvation to come. So during that time, it might be like, hey, I want to be the one that produces the Savior. I want to be the one that produces the Savior that, that is to come. I want to be the one that the Savior, this comes out of my line, and who better to come out of my line with than someone who is big and strong? It's not a bad idea on someone's part. So I don't think even that during the women during this time had a necessarily bad intention. I just think, again, we have an enemy who can pervert the truth just enough to make us think, that, that, well, that's probably just okay. It's probably okay just to do this thing. It's just a little bit off the truth to make us think that those mighty men of renown, that would be the way to go. Church, listen. We have the same enemy today who twist the truth just a little bit, who make us think that that's probably just okay hey, that's not a terrible idea. I mean, it seems like it would be right. It seems like that would be a good idea. It seems like that would be the way to go. But the end thereof can be destruction. I believe that was what was in play here in Genesis chapter six. Now the text switches gears a little bit right after this. And so while I believe that verses one through four highlight this angelic invasion to wipe out the Savior and to <coughs> try to reverse the curse, verses five through seven uh, really serve notice that mankind was a deserving of God's destructive intervention in, uh, in history, which is the flood that was to come. Look what it says in Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, say every, every, every intention of the thoughts in his heart was only, say only, only evil continually, say continually. And so then we get to verse six, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the, of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so, <clears throat> in this text, it seems that we come upon a, a very serious problem. It would almost appear that God changes his mind. That God goes, ooh, I don't know about that. And so the question that we have to think is this. Does God change his mind? Does God decide to do something and then change his mind? Several things we got to consider as we think about does God change his mind. First is this, 
We know this, God is unchanging in his person, his perfections, his purposes, and his promises. Those P's are for you, Danny McCroskey. Uh, all of those that he is, uh, he, he is unchanging in the way that he, and when the way he operates. He unchanges in this person. He is the same yesterday, today, and when? Yeah, tomorrow, the yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is unchanging in his perfections. Everything that he does is perfect, right? It is good and right and perfect. He is unchanging in his purposes. He sets out to do something, and he accomplishes his purposes when he sets out to do them. And he is unchanging in his promises. He doesn't change what he promises. If he promises it, it will come to pass. So he is unchanging in all these things. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He, he has said, uh, has he said, and, and he will not, has he, has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Which says that God does what he says he's going to do. And if he decrees something, he doesn't come back and he doesn't change these things. Romans chapter 11 tells us that God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. So we have to think about this is who God is. So in the middle of this text, we have to consider this. Secondly, we have to remember this. <clears throat> there are passages in which God appears to change his mind. We read through these, and we go, well, it certainly seems like God changes his mind in these passages. Here's a couple of them. Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 and 10 says, The Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he had said would come to his people. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 says this. <clears throat> Thanks for all my supplies up here. When God saw their deeds and that they turned from their wicked way, then God repented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Seemed like God changed his mind. Amos chapter 7 says this, the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Huh. So there are passages that seems like the Lord changes his mind. And so what we see is when we get to passages like this, here's gonna be a good $10 theological word for you. Uh, this expression that God repented or something like this is an anthropomorphism. Wow. <laughs> anthropomorphism. Say that to your neighbor. Some of y'all need to say it again. Come on. One more time, third time's a charm. Anthropomorphism. There you go. Y'all can talk about that around lunch today. So anthropomorphism, and so that is a description of God that likens God's actions to man's actions, okay? That's what an anthropomorphism is, that it likens what God does to something that we can understand. I mean, it's hard, I mean, we can't wrap our mind around the things of God. 
We can't understand God fully. So sometimes there are some things that have to be described in our human terms so that we can under, so we can get some type of idea about what it was that God looks that he's doing. So from our perspective, it's going to look like God changed his mind or God did some things like that. That's an anthropomorphism. And so we know this, that what God decrees, it cannot be altered. But we also can know that God can do what God wants to do and how he can choose to do the things that he chooses to do, how he wants to do them, right? Why? Yeah, because he's God. He can do those things and he can choose to do those things on his own. And so while he might, while um, how he does things might change, the things in his purposes do not change. Romans chapter 11, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so while God's will or his decree cannot change, uh, we can know that his emotions might change around something. Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, describes God's response to human sin. So the sin, the scripture tells us, that had so greatly pervaded this world, we see God's response to it. And he's grieved by it. He's saddened by it. His heart is broken over sin. Grief is love's, God's love's response to sin. See, I, I don't believe God is a stoic. I don't believe that God is just someone who sits in the heavens and is not doesn't have any emotions. I don't believe that God sits up and is is not I believe he's full of joy and I believe he's is full of righteous anger. We read these things. So he is not a stoic. And so while the purposes of God for mankind never changes, we can see that his attitude might really have changed in the middle of this. I mean surely a holy God must feel differently about sin than about obedience. So what? So, I mean, what do you do with a text like this? How do you take a text about Nephilim and and angelic beings and uh, uh, thwarting the plans of God, trying to thwart the plans of God, and, and what do you do about what seems like God's decrees might change and what do you do whenever God says he wants to wipe everything out? I think as you think about this in context for Israel, when it was written, um, I think it gives us an adequate explanation for the flood that is to come. If you're not familiar with your Bible? There's a big flood coming, and it's big. Big, big rain. Yeah, water coming from everywhere. And, and so that's coming, and we'll get to that soon. Uh, uh, we can see, honestly, that this super race that was created between these angelic beings and humans really had to be eliminated. Um, uh, we, we know that this, the flood that was coming was, was going to be judgment on the sin of man. Um, 
uh, and, and he would, God would still need to fulfill his promise through the seed of woman and had this intermingling of these angelic beings and these women, had it continued, then again, it could have wiped out the possibility of the Savior that was to come and God had already decreed and declared that a Savior was to come. And so now, what does that mean for us today though? What do we take from a text like this as we read it and take it into 2020? Uh, what do we do? See, the scripture has lots to say about Satan and his demons and the work that they do. Yet few of us seem to take our spiritual warfare very seriously. Few of us. I mean, we just kind of roll through life and don't think about the spiritual aspect. I mean, many of us think that the church and people in the church, I mean, that, that's you and me, that we can operate on uh, human strength and our wisdom alone. We think that we can get up without spending time in the Word. We think we can get up without praying and talking to the creator of the universe. We think that we've kind of got it figured out and we can just do it on our own because God's gifted us enough and I've made it this far and everything seems to be okay. We can do that with just a little help from God, like we don't need him. That's the way most of us live. We often attempt to live the spiritual life in the power of the flesh. I mean, we urge people to rededicate their life. Hey, rededicate your life. Double up your efforts. Just do better. Try a little harder. You'll be okay. But we fail to remember that our only strength is that in which God supplies I mean, the only strength that we have is that that we get from God. I mean, prayer is essential for us on a regular basis. God generously gives to those who are in their weakest places, who declare our, our desperate need for him. That's whenever he comes to us and supplies our every need. Not whenever we stick our chest out and go, I got it. But when we fall on our knees and go, I need it. That's when God supplies. See, the battle today goes on between the sons of Satan and the sons of God. Scripture tells us that. I believe it's even more intense today than it was then. Because Satan knows that his days are doomed. We're on this side of the cross now. And he knows that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he knows that his days are numbered. And so for us, we need to be wise in that church. We need to be wise in how we live. We need to be wise in how we put on our spiritual armor and plan for every day for the spiritual warfare that is ahead. The scripture tells us that we are, we're called to put on the belt of truth. As I was thinking about these spiritual, uh, the spiritual armor that we put on, I was thinking it is something that we take and we put on, right? And we take and we put it on regularly. The scripture tells us to put it on on a daily basis. And so it is something that is what? Supplied to us. 
We don't just have it on us all the time. It's something that supplies us. And the scripture tells us to put on the belt of truth. To only believe that the truth, we get the truth from where? Yeah, from the scriptures. So pick up this belt. Pick up this belt and use it. Put it on. Put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness to cover our heart. What is the breastplate of righteousness? That is trusting in the finished work of Jesus, that he is the one who covers our heart and our being. To put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. What would that mean? To put on the shoes of the gospel of peace would be that no matter where I go, I'm bringing peace and not division. That no matter where I am, the presence that I am, that by the help of the Holy Spirit, by the help of putting on something that God provides to me, I am bringing peace into a situation and not calamity. To put on the shield of faith, to carry the shield of faith to go, nah, I'm gonna use the, my faith in the, in the finished work of Jesus to quell your fiery dart. Shoot at me all you want. But it's the shield of faith, not my doing better, trying harder, but the shield of faith in the finished work of Jesus that will quell the fiery darts of the enemy. To put on the helmet of salvation to protect our mind, to know that we belong to Jesus, to intellectually know that we belong to Jesus, that he has rescued us from our sin and from our death, and to use the sword of the Spirit as an offensive weapon to go, it is the Holy Spirit who fights our battles. That is what we put on. It is given to us. It is, they are weapons from God. We know that there are people out there that would like to quench all this within us. Lastly, I'll say this. I believe that our enemy does some of his best work in the places where men and women put their... Uh, place their hope in salvation. See, when these angel men proposed to the daughters of men, they appeared to be the most promising fathers. They, they appeared to be the best ones. Hey, yeah, let's, let's go with that good-looking dude. If, if Maybe if they're immortal beings, then my offspring will be immortal as well. Was this the way that God was going to reverse the curse? I can see why that was an enticing thing. And this is precisely the same kind of thing that Satan does to each of us today. Distort the truth just enough to have us follow his own schemes. Even for us, church. For you and me in the church that, who has the truth who knows the truth, we don't know it well enough sometimes that we get fooled by the distortions of our enemy. Watch out, my friends. Watch out. Let us warn one another to always be on guard. Always be on guard. You need to help me be on guard. I need to help you be on guard guard. Where are you putting your hope for immortality? In some scheme? Are you wishing to build something with your own name on it? It won't last. The flood's coming. 
Are you wishing to build your own? I said this, with this I'll close. The only way to become a son of God is through the son of God. Not through any other schemes. Not through some uh, uh, finding your own way, but through the son of God. Jesus says, I am the way. Not finding your own way. I am the way. I am the truth. Not finding your own truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Not living your own life, but a life that is given by him. No one comes to the Father but through me. Someone here today has been putting your faith in anything else. You've been fooled by an enemy that says you can find hope in something else. I'm here to tell you on the authority of the word of God that your hope is found in Jesus. The last verse uh, says this that we covered, uh, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was grace for Noah in spite of all this calamity that was going around. And there's grace for you today. My encouragement to you is just like Noah, we'll get to that. Noah found grace in the, in the middle of sin. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. My encouragement to you is to find grace, to find hope, and to find peace today in Jesus. It would be our joy to tell you more about that. And we'll do that after we pray. Let's pray together. God, we love you. I'm thankful for you making a way. I'm thankful that despite our sinfulness, despite our own actions, that many of us would have done the same kinds of things that we read about in Genesis chapter six. We even do them today. We try to find hope in anything else but you. My hope is today that we will find our trust and our peace and our uh, future that is, is, is solely rooted in you alone, Jesus. And so today, as, as many have walked in and, and worshiping and listening to you today, my, my prayer today is, is that um, uh, uh, peace will flow, that joy will come, that clarity comes, that that, Holy Spirit, you are revealing to each of us the places where we have chased after our own things of renown, where we have put our hope in something else rather than your own promises. We're putting our hopes in anything else but trusting in the finished work of Jesus. God, will you help us today to repent of those things and trust in you and your word alone? God, will you help us not to believe the subtle lies of our enemy that this is okay or that's okay or this is okay or, or it's okay to just dabble over in this? God, will you help us not to turn from you and turn to those things, but you'll help us to turn and trust in you, oh God. Your teachings are true. Your grace is enough. Your hope is real. So today, my prayer also is for someone who might have walked in that really goes, I put my faith in everything else but Jesus. And so my hope today is that someone will put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, that they'll know that their only hope is found in Jesus alone, not, not in their own righteousness, not in their own good works, but in the finished work of Jesus. And so today, God, will you open, awaken dead hearts to the good news of the gospel, that they might repent and believe today. We find grace 
We find our hope in you, oh God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.